It's fucking mine, loser. Get off me. <laughs> this episode of the Oral History Podcast is sponsored by the Booklist Reader, a blog brought to you by the book geeks at Booklist Publications. Starting February 10th, to help create Booklist Magazine's first ever Spotlight on Humor, they'll be publishing a bunch of posts on funny books, funny women, how to write stuff that makes people laugh, and more. You'll find it all at booklistreader.com, where you can sign up by email to receive daily updates, or just follow them on Twitter at, at @booklistreader. Hey, Krista, what are you reading right now? Um, well, I just finished reading uh, The War That Saved My Life uh, by Kimberly Brewbreaker Bradley. It's What, uh, what is that about? It's I just heard about fantastic. That. It's, a, uh, it's actually a Newbery honor this year. It's a middle grade book about a girl with cl- a club foot who uh, gets sent out of London to live. Uh, she's like evacuated, like all the children are evacuated from London um, when the bombing starts. It's like World War II. So when the Germans start bombing, bombing London they get the kids get evacuated to go right. live with someone else and um she's got this abusive mother so uh she it's a, like a, a totally great thing that she gets evacuated um so it's super cool I love Kimberly uh the author and it's a great book we're doing it for our mother-daughter book club um <laughs> and my other book and so I just finished it and then um I have my other book club next week which is my ladies book club and that we're reading fates and furies for so that's what I'm reading right now. Catching up. What are you reading? Why don't you have some book clubs that you're involved involved in? I know. Jesus. I know. Seriously. Um, I might read that word that saved my life, even though I rarely read middle grade, because I like that whole where they, there's a lot of novels about them shipping children out into the countryside out of London. I think Oliver Sacks has a, the late Oliver Sacks has a memoir about that, which I thought was really interesting. Um, okay, what I am reading, I just finished reading uh, the third book in the Dustlands trilogy called Raging Star. The author is Moira Young, um, and I really like that because I like the voice and the style. There's a kind of a dialect that she's rocking there, and then um, and also there was there was sex, so. So a double win there. Plus one. Yeah. Um, And then (laughs) I'm reading this pictorial kind of photo essay book called The Narcotic Farm by Nancy D. Campbell, which is about this farm in Lexington, Kentucky, that they used to, it had the nation's very first addiction research center. And they had uh, opiate addicts and other kinds of drug addicts come there. And they did research on the addicts, which is sort of terrible, but they learned a lot about addiction and what it what what it means, how it's not about being a degenerate, but how it has uh, physiological and psychological components. And there's really cool pictures of the, the facility. It was a working farm. Nice. And so the addicts that were there for treatment. Um, it was also a prison. So some of the addicts that were there were imprisoned there. Um, so they had to do jobs like pick kale and, you know, feed pigs and stuff like that. But anyway, um, so I'm reading that now. Um, good, and- good nonfiction. I have a couple nonfiction things going on right now too. I, I love nonfiction when we get into that world. Well, cause insomnia. Yeah, you know? exactly. Okay. Let's get started. Enough book talk. I mean, we're going to get more into book talk, but okay, let's get started. A few announcements first. Um, 
Coming up in February, uh, we'll be doing our second annual Right Lady Head Right Challenge. Um, last year, if you recall, we talked about it on Twitter and then ended up with seven great submissions on the topic of female-focused oral sex, which is what we call Ladyhead. Uh, <laughs> this year, we're putting together an entire Tumblr that you can submit your work to, which is pretty exciting. Um, so we're going to start putting up submissions February 1st, and we'll continue throughout the month. So Valentine's month is going to be Ladyhead month. Um, if you need the direct link, we'll have it on the show notes on the or um, on the uh, on the book list reader site and on our main site www.theoralhistorypodcast.com. And our main site is where we keep the other last year's Right Ladyhead Right stories. I'm also posting them on the the Tumblr, so you can check some of those out right now. Um, and yeah, we're really excited about it. It's been a really fun. Uh, project for us. So, uh, so, so should we do go. the regular I mean, show? Yes, now I know everyone's like already enough with Shut all your up. announcements. Shut up. Yeah. Get to the topic. Okay, so I'm going to introduce this topic by telling you all readers and really just carry a story about a very good friend of mine who is, I guess, navigating the waters of modern dating. Um, and I say modern dating because uh, this is, uh, it's been very interesting watching her go through this over the last several years. And since I've been partnered for 16 years now, I don't even know what this world looks like. Um, but anyway, she uh, had an online, you know, sort of, she she navigated through an online online dating site and she met a guy and they went to dinner and their dinner was really wonderful, and they had a lot of things to on to connect on, and just a lot of great things were happening there. So she takes them back to her place, and they start fucking basically. And um, at, at, at a certain point in this, fairly early on, he like uh, you know rolls on top of her and starts like yelling. Whose pussy is this? Whose pussy is this? Over and over again. And she's like, at first she was like, what? What in the hell is this guy saying? Like, she was almost like so astonished by this that she was mute. She had rendered herself mute over what in the hell this guy was doing. And by, like, but he keeps saying it. Like, he, you know, as he's like plunging into her, he's going, whose pussy is this? And finally, she kicks him really hard and goes, it's fucking mine, loser. Get off me. And she kicks him out of her house. But the whole story, like, and, and she was like, what? What? And she he's like shocked that she has made him stop boning her because because he's was screaming this and she and he and she's like, What are you even saying? And he's like, Girls like this. Women want guys to take over in the bedroom. Ugh. And she was so she was like, I can't even with you right now, get out of here. Um <laughs> so Anyway, uh, that is that story. Um, I, I still in my head call it the whose pussy is this story, um, which I, I mean, it famously is is from that uh, Spike Lee. Uh, She's got to have it movie. <laughs> Do you remember that scene? The whose pussy is it in Spike Lee's? I She's got to have it. But anyway, um, obviously, <laughs> the, the, the expectation was was for her to say yours. And instead, she kicked my friend, kicked him and said, mine, you fucking asshole. <laughs> Get off. Which right. is great. Well, I mean, the 
first thing I would wonder is like, is he unclear about where he is? Is he like hallucinating? Does he not know? I mean, geez, Louise. Um, well, so that's a really good example of what we're going to discuss today, which is um, we're going to unpack traditional masculinity, or we could talk about toxic masculinity. Um, and this is what we've been calling interactions with hashtag worst dude ever. You might have been following that hashtag on Twitter, and a lot of you shared some <laughs> really icky guy stories or, you know, horrifying guy stories that you dated or had sex with. Um, so feel free to keep using that hashtag. I think it's very healthy to get it all out. But um, that is a cra- that little story encapsulates how the lessons of our traditional culture that they that are taught to males are just so bananas and you're, you you want to kind of walk back where all of these um this behavior came from is kind of my thing yeah at least in my 40s i feel like i i have an idea of my own feminism in terms of being pro woman and doing my own thing and whatever but the older i get the more i feel like yeah 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 okay I want to kick the can back to the dudes who seem to be having all the trouble and causing all the the suffering. <laughs> um, and I wanna, I want them to join into the conversation in a meaningful way, not in just a nodding way, but in a way where they kind of examine what they've been taught and why they've been taught it, and what's valuable and what can be pitched in terms of their male um, conditioning. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, And I think you and I, I mean, I, I of course, just told the story of my friend, but I think you and I for sure have our own um, sack full of worst dude ever stories and things that we have bumped into um, in terms of either, you know, um, masculinity playing itself out in in a way that is kind of gross and uh, doesn't (laughs) feel good at all, or uh, just things that we've encountered where we're like, the fuck happened there? (laughs) Right. Um, So, uh, and I think like, particularly for, I mean, we're, we're both partner now, but particularly from when we were younger, and, uh, and probably more willing to take on this a lot of bullshit that we would no longer even be dealing with now. So Carrie, why don't you give me like one or two examples of your worst dude ever? Or, you know, Um, a a few examples of your worst dude ever stories. Well, so one was when I was fairly young, I think I was 14, and I started dating this boy who was older. Again, dating makes it sound like We went somewhere in a car and had a meal and saw a movie, but really it was just much sleazier. Um, But anyway, I started dating him, and I didn't really like him, but he really liked me. So I was like, well, that's worth something, I guess. And um, he kind of grew on me, I guess. And I was... uh, but he was just, he had all these sorts of neurosis, and he was really, like, clingy, and I knew I couldn't handle all of the problems he had. Um, And I just, it wasn't any fun. And so I finally broke up with him. And after that, he was very, I want to say it it wasn't stalking, because stalking to me always connotes something a little more scary. But he 
was always calling and hanging up or calling in the middle of the night when he was very drunk to the point where we had to keep the phone off the hook at night, which... Uh, younger listeners, phones used to be connected to walls and you could take them off the hook and nobody could reach you, which sounds terrifying, I suppose. But anyways, so like we had to do that. And then when I started doing that, he started calling all my friends in the middle of the night and like crying about how sad he was and um, why I wouldn't talk to him and all this crap. And then in like social situations, if I was at a party or a dance or something, he would be standing there, like, kind of glowering in the background, like, watching everything I did and in this sort of creepy, jealous way. And at the time, I just felt ashamed of myself that I had brought that on. Like, if I had just not gone along with a relationship with him, I wouldn't have had to deal with all of his uh unwillingness to let go that I kind of just felt like I deserved that 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 was the punishment uh, that is fascinating to me okay I, I want to I'm gonna pull that apart a little I'm gonna ask you some <laughs> questions about it I guess first we should say um I was we were gonna maybe say this later on but I think we for sure should say first that um this topic is tricky this whole topic of the idea of worst dude ever or whatever these experiences it's tricky because it comes off as like misandry or male bashing or whatever but the reality is that both of us i think approach this as um sort of anecdotes about our life and the things the mistakes we've made and um and also to um i guess in what you're saying here and what i'm hearing is you saying, oh, I kind of blame myself. Like I, I brought this on myself. And and to me, whenever we're talking about this kind of thing, it's this fine line of, yes, these are worst dudes ever. But the reality is you and I both dated them. Like, you know, right. you know what I'm saying? Like this isn't, you know, I mean, it, w- it was our choice. We dated them. And for exactly, you, you said something in there that I thought was super interesting, which was you said, um, well, he really liked me and that had some worth for me. And to me, almost everything in terms of my young dating life of dating boys, at least was driven by that. If someone liked me, that that already gave them a lot more, more merit. And if they liked me um, publicly, as opposed to like furtively letting me sneak in their room to blow them, you know, I'm talking about like the like where they acknowledged me in, you know, I, I, I call it the like the 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 moment when Jordan Catalano in the hallway of my so-called life actually like holds her hand. That right. feels like really like it's worth a lot of stuff. And um, just what you were saying when you got into that story with this guy and like this was all a huge mess. But even now or at the time, I guess, maybe not so much now, but you held yourself culpable. Yeah. Well, I guess I thought that, I mean, it was just, if I'd had more, like, I guess, true or love or whatever, <laughs> that maybe uh, I wouldn't have gone down that road. And because it, I was just sort of like, well, I'm, I was kind of doing this to be nice. And I was kind of like, well, he really likes me. So that's kind of interesting, I guess. Um, and he wasn't that he was completely trollish, but it wasn't like he was, you know, super dazzling either. So I don't know. It, well, the whole and- thing is full of shame. And I just felt like, oh, that's what you get. You get that. You have to deal with that because you didn't make a good choice. Well, so. and that you were trying to be nice. So this is this is also super some, something super interesting for me is this idea that... Um, 
this past weekend, I was at this, uh, I gave a, a, like a workshop talk on, uh, the sexual lives of teenagers. And I, there was a, you know, maybe 25 people in the room and I like offhandedly mentioned the idea of transactional blowjobs. And, um, and then I just kept going. And one of the dudes was like, wait, what's that? What, what does that even mean? And I was like, you don't know what oh, a trans- my sweet summer I, child. I, oh, my sweet, like, man in the room. Um, and all the dudes were baffled by the idea of transactional blowjobs that that uh, frequently that women will sort of, like, do do a dude a solid by blowing him. Like, that this was so, un- like, they were so shocked that this happened. And, of course, I was talking about it in the context of, a, of my book and how... Um, uh, the girl wanted vodka and, and this boy brought it over to her. And so she gave him a blowjob like as a thank you. And the the guys were so shocked. And every woman in there was like, wait, you don't know that this is that transaction like that, you know, that our end game is not always to like worship your penis in every possible avenue. <laughs> and that, that sometimes <laughs> that these transactional things happen and I, I think like that that's such an interesting thing that uh, you feel like you owe someone something. Um, or, and I think that that tends to be um, more, uh, I guess, in this in the in the context of how we're talking about it, that tends to be more a female thing that you owe someone something because you did agree to date him or whatever. And it just makes me start thinking about this idea that we feel like we owe anyone anything because of choices that we've made. Um, And it gets really complicated because then you start thinking about consent and how, um, I mean, which is sort of the rabbit hole we went down in that room was this idea that sometimes you're willing to do X so you can avoid Y, if that makes sense. Well, the other thing with this stocky kind of, wouldn't let go situation is that um, he, I mean, it sort of brings up the lesson that boys are taught about persistence. Like if you never give up because you really love someone and you, you just can't let it go, then that persistence will pay off because that in itself is some sort of uh, emblem of how true your feelings are. And so you know, you will be won over by the persistence of the the dude. And I I think that's a really gross lesson because it kind of, um, it kind of brings to mind this other situation I was in where I liked this guy in college and I'm, I'm really bad when it comes to like trying, you know, like I don't like to be viewed as doing anything I'm doing is trying. I want it to look like I just woke up like this, like I just fell out of bed and some dude went out and had a drink with me and it was super easy. But like, so I did all this stuff to seem really natural and cool to hang out with this guy and whatever, asked him out for a drink on some pretense that we were going to discuss something in this class we were in and blah, blah, blah. And so like that went on for several weeks and, um, I felt like I was doing a really good job of like, I don't know, pursuing somebody that I liked. And he was very receptive to it all. But I I never like did anything physical because I'm super shy about that. And I always just wait for that to happen because I, I just don't like doing that necessarily. And um, 
so it got to like one point where um, we were we had done a whole bunch of things and we'd gone to a bunch of parties and we'd hung out and it was fun. And then he, one day we were all sitting in the cafe having lunch and he casually mentioned how he had a girlfriend and that they were moving in together the summer after they graduated, which was like in a few months. And I just about threw up. I was just like, um, like. So here I am doing what I think is like appropriate, you know, accepting of people's boundaries and going slow and being really like natural about pursuing someone. And the dude just keeps sitting there absorbing it and never apparently picking up any sort of hints. And then. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm crying. What the fuck was that? I cry bullshit on this whole thing. Um, First of all. Oh, my gosh. I have a lot to say about this. But the first thing (laughs) I have to say is. That when dudes don't mention when they're talking to you um, within the first, I don't know, half an hour of a conversation that they have someone else, I'm always immediately very suspect about their their uh, agenda there. Um, and whether it's because they plan on like hooking up with you on the side or because they plan on absorbing all your ego stroking and the investment that you're putting into this, dudes who do not disclose partners can fuck the hell off. Because (laughs) you know what? That's bullshit. I I am so, I am not, that is not okay. Uh, So that's part one. But part two on this is I'm just fascinated by how long, I mean, he knew, Carrie, he knew. No, No one is that obtuse that your subtlety and your hanging out and all your other things uh, is unclear. He knew and he was absorbing all of that. He this was an ego thing, and then for, for for whatever reason, whether or not he had finally decided to seal the deal with his own girlfriend and make this commitment, or he finally decided that he was going to have to be the one who was going to nut up and make a move on you, and decided like he wasn't actually able to do that that's why he disclosed that girlfriend thing in front of all these people and he did it in front of all these people so it's not like he said it to you on the side like it was like he had like the full humiliation of that and the full protection of his own self that you wouldn't go after him and go hey dick i've been like pursuing this and you have been kind of leading me on oh it was awful she came to the graduation i saw her and i was like First of all, you're wearing nude nylons. Um, So what is that? And secondly, like... I am way cuter. I was like so selfishly yeah, like see, even in this, annoyed. Okay, the, the, I'm like, this the, is terrible. Why did he do this? You know, it was. I know. I, I've never tried since since that happened. I've that nobody ever got the works the the trying put on them because I was just like, well, see where that leads you. That's a big bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Well, and the thing you <laughs> see what it also puts sets you up for is this idea of romantic rivals, right? That that yeah. your response is now like I'm way cuter than you, and you're wearing nude nylons, which the really to me I'm like no no that does not belong with that girl. See, and of course it's easier for me because basically I would see another girl who would be necessarily a romantic rival, and I would just turn that around and. Go, I'm gonna seduce this one instead. Oh, <laughs> you know, God. that would be my agenda. If I was pissed off at this guy, I'd be like, oh, I'm gonna seduce your girlfriend, so fuck off. Even with her nude nylons? Yes. yes. Um, but the point being, in, in this sort of scenario, I feel like 
there's a side to me that says like this creates that he created that uh romantic rivalry or or doing that kind of thing because it he left you with no options except for feeling stupid about what you were doing um right. now i tend to not be um i mean i i go the other way um when it comes to trying like i'm not subtle at all because my general feeling is and this is this is a life lesson kids um <laughs> so listen get your pencils out my general <laughs> feeling is if someone doesn't think that the sun rises and sets with you then they need to get out of the way because there's someone out there who does think that so when someone's like fucking around and not being really clear and maybe they like you and maybe they don't to me that's half ass and i want you to get out of the way because someone who is going to whole ass liking me and that is <laughs> you know what i'm saying like they're going to whole ass like me and that's the person i want to be with and i want to whole right. ass like them you know so whenever i feel sort of vague about something or i'm like yeah maybe that's the time where i'm like no i'm not investing in that so even when i met julio I didn't, you know, I think I put my hand on his thigh, like within the first 15 minutes of us sitting together. Um, and he was like, oh, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, so in, are you in? <laughs> I mean, I, it was not subtle at all. Um, so I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting thing, but I do feel like, uh, I, I want to hold this dude a little culpable for not mentioning that he had a girlfriend because that was very self-serving on his part. <laughs> Well, and I mean, I don't know if there was like a fear of being direct. I guess I thought it was him being kind of in, afraid of being direct or or maybe he just was. I, I also read it as he just didn't. I wasn't being um, obvious enough. No, you know, I, that's and a uh, that's I a thought, lie. God, is he that emotionally unintelligent that he doesn't understand that this is what this is? Okay, I am depressed. Will you tell me no, your... I will in a second, but I just do want to say <laughs> one more thing about that is that to me, most guys have the agenda of boning, particularly when they're younger. And so I don't think that he was emotionally unintelligent. I think he, he was deciding what he was going to do about it, which is just shenanigans all the way around. Um, but don't put that on yourself, lady. That is not on you. And it's mm -hmm. not on his girlfriend. That's on that douchebag. Um, okay. <laughs> so here's my stories. Here's my um, worst dude ever stories. Um, I, it's, this is, uh, I guess we're, we're a little heterosexual focus. I'm glad we're doing, a, I'm covering a gay book right now. Cause I imagine that if we had, you know, some of our friends on, they would be like, why are you guys just talking about this? But, um, it's mostly cause that's our experiences. Um, but I would say, okay, so I dated a guy when I was in, hmm, I want to say a junior in high school, um, who and I was working um, because I have always been kind of a worker bee and and one of those people who would you know I just worked all the time um, starting at a really young age and I was working and he was not and he had actually dropped out of high school um, and he was uh, constantly borrowing money from me like because I would get paid and then he would just borrow money from me um, and for pot to buy himself pot um, with always the thing like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to get paid later. I got this thing. I got this gig. I mean, it was like kind of worse because he was a musician. So I was a Classy. musician. Yeah, I know. I was like a musician chick, which like that's a cautionary tale if, if ever there was one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he was a musician and he would have these like vague gigs 
coming up so he would be able to pay me back. And he never paid me back. And I just kept doing it. And this kind of goes along with the idea of this is why I don't necessarily feel like this is misandry as opposed to an example of my own stupidity. Um, but I would say, like, this is an example where I never asked for the money back. I would lend him money and I didn't like there was no leaning in here. This was like me wanting him to like me and wanting to be the cool girl who was totally willing to just give him half my freaking paycheck for working at the pharmacy. You know, like I just, you know, like I had this shitty job working the candy counter at the pharmacy. And like, you know, I made, I think, $5.25 an hour. And I mean, it was appalling. And then I would still give him like half my paycheck fairly frequently with this nebulous, like, I'm going to do Peace Fest and I'll get back to you this cash. And it just was like, it was hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So, and when you're like 16 years old, that's like a lot of money. Um, right. So that is my uh, one of my worst dude ever stories. Well, that's a really interesting thing because, like, again, like the men who are clueless about transactional sex acts, <laughs> I feel like there are men that just think, well, people are here to give me things. Yes. If I ask for something, I'm going to get it. I don't have to have a lot of consternation about it. It's And especially if I ask women. I'm just going to get it. I, and I don't know, like, where is that lesson? Where is, where is that first rolled out in the male curriculum of modern life where they just, first of all, have some balls asking for money. And then secondly, you know, with no, oh, no, no timetable of when you're going to really pay him you back. And then just, I mean, where does that person have any shame? Does he just try not to think about it? I, I don't I'm really understand. I'm super curious about that, too. I, I almost, like, want to reach out and be like, did you, like, you still owe me, like, over $1,000. Do you, what's your, <laughs> what's your plan here? Like, what's, because I could use that cash right now. Um, no, but I'll, also the idea of uh, entitlement and sort of what I would consider, like, male entitlement. And part of me thinks, like, this is a little on me because I've watched male entitlement play out where there's just an assumption that, of course, this is going to be fine. Like, this is not a big deal. We're just it's sort of this whole ask forgiveness, not permission, this whole like, the, right. I mean, like th that men would ever need to lean in. No, they were built leaning in. And I right. also feel like simultaneously, I was encultured to apologize for anything that was was even something that I'm owed, you know, so that I would say, like, I'm really sorry, but do you think that you could pay me back some of that money, you know, that I would apologize yeah. for money that is owed to me. And that that continues to this day. I mean, it takes me a lot to ask for money, to ask for a lot of things. It takes me a lot to ask for donations to charities that I feel deeply, you know, entrenched in. I mean, and I feel like there's sort of an apology brain set that I have uh, adopted in the same way that somehow uh, the the masculine brain or 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 dudes have adopted sort of an entitled thing like well of course you're going to give me money and it's really interesting because I've even seen it in like boards at uh, like you know for nonprofits that I work in where uh, they have brought men onto the boards because they're better at asking for money. And oh, there's a part of me that wants to be like, that's <clears throat> bullshit. And yet at the same time, I watch the way they do it. And I was like, oh, it's because they're not expecting a no. Whereas a lot right. of times I am, 
you know, like saying, right. oh, you know, so it's a very interesting um, just dynamic that I think. Which, you know, accounts for the real life uh, incongruence of wages for men and women because women feel dumb asking for raises or negotiating when they get a job offer and men they, you know, like the mister for me, like, you know, he just popped out of his mom's womb and felt like he should negotiate his salary or ask for raises. And and I think because women are more hesitant about doing that, they, they again, get paid less because they don't uh, ascend the salary scale at the same rate. And it's because of that stupid goddamn lesson that we're, we're taught that, you know, we should feel meek and shy about everything, or that men are taught that they just naturally deserve whatever the fuck they are, are needing or asking yes. for. Although um, I would also add to that, though, that I think part of that is that we have been led to believe that these things um, that we have are handicaps to us earning that stuff. So for example, I have a friend who's excellent at asking for raises and she just has it. She's like very like the epitome of lean in in a lot of ways. But part of that is that she has been um, sort of sandbagged before on, well, you do leave early to pick up your kids from childcare and a bunch of other bullshit that I don't think that men are necessarily sandbagged. So she like she has to really push out of her comfort zone and be like, fuck off with that. I'm allowed to have a family. Um, But I do think a lot of times, you know, part of this isn't just us not asking. The other part is because we are considered to be, you know, not the primary uh, income providers in our family because we're considered to be doing dual jobs and therefore not working as hard if we have families, like all these uh, this other bullshit that goes along with that too. And then don't even get into like, if you're a woman of color, if you're, you know, a woman who is disabled, if you're a woman who's queer, like all those different dynamics that also play in. But that's maybe for a different time. <laughs> right, right. Well, what's your other worst dude oh, ever? Okay. So my other one is, um, okay, this is like hilarious. And of course, like this says so much about me. I feel like sometimes the adult me is so uh, different than what the teenage me is like. And yet you could see the evolution, how this all happened um, and just how I had to find my way into, you know, being liked and being, you know, held as a good person to date. Um, but I dated this, this white dude with dreads, which like, I feel like that I I can stop right there. Oh my God. Yeah. I I can stop right there and just about everyone will know what that means. Um, but I dated this white dude with dreads and, uh, he would, every conversation that he had, he was one of those guys who also had like a Burmese Python, like in his room, you know, that guy. Um, so throwing up a little bit, I'm like, all I have to say are these two things and you already know. Um, Uh and he would have conversations with me and the whole time he would be looking past me and I was like, what the hell? And we'd be having these like really intense conversations and he was always like, he looking right over my shoulder. And for a while I thought he had like an eye thing where I was like, (laughs) oh, maybe he's got some kind of like not even a lazy eye, but like he had some kind of like, you know, dilation thing, or maybe he was just stoned. And so his eyes couldn't make eye contact, whatever. Then finally, I mean, after like several weeks of this, I look behind me 
And I realize that there is a, uh, like a, uh, a stereo that has uh, a glass doors on it. And he's looking at his reflection Ugh. as he talks. And I'm like, no way. And then I start to notice that everywhere we are, everywhere we go out, he's like talking and he's talking. And I was like, oh my God, you're a reflection guy. Like you're talking to, you're basically talking to yourself. You're seeing what you look like when you talk. And I've never, ever met anyone since then that has that sort of level of vanity wrapped around them. But it was so foreign to me because, you know, I'm not a fancy person and I don't care about, you know, makeup and those kind of things. And so it was, I just was like, wow, wow, you're really looking at yourself this whole time. Like we're just, it, it, so it felt like it was a conversation for one. Um, so I guess that's well, what I would <laughs> say. About so there's, there's two things there. Um, first of all, in his position, if I were talking to someone and I kept seeing my reflection, I would sit somewhere else. I absolutely can't stand to see myself like that while I'm just trying to be normal. I would get all affected and seized up. I mean, same thing when I go get my hair cut. I make the lady turn the chair away from the mirror because I can't bear to talk to her uh, it is and weird. look at myself. Yes, um, Yeah, because I just am like, I feel completely weird and vain and uh, like... Um, and my hairstylist, in fact, told me, she's like, oh, yeah, some people talk even more than, you know, when they are looking at themselves and they spend the whole time checking themselves out. And I was just like, thinking that was very funny. I mean, if there's any any time you could be allowed to do so, it would be in the hairstylist's chair. But at the same time, I'm completely grossed out about that. I can't stand that personally. Um, and the other thing that's funny about that is that women get kind of crapped on for being vain. Yes, And so you wouldn't think that men are like that. You're, you're supposed to think that men, again, don't care about their appearance. They don't care if they're wrinkly or gray or, you know, whatever. And the fact is, like, this guy is proving to you over and over that, A, he doesn't really care about what you're saying. He, he's he's privileging what he's saying. And also he's really into how he looks, which <laughs> I know. we both are kind of disgusted by because men aren't supposed to be that way. But, I mean... Everybody is kind of that way in a lot of ways. Like, I just don't like to do it where anyone else isn't adjacent to me. Like, I want to check out myself when I'm completely alone. I don't want to do it when anyone else is around. So there's like this weird shame about being vain. Because yes. I think you're taught different lessons about vanity. And I know I do like the sort of like the take back selfies thing that's happening right now with a lot of women and but I do I, I also have thought a lot that this is something that uh we are led to believe that uh you know men can roll out of bed and they look like what they look they you know they look like Ryan Gosling and that's how it look you know without realizing <laughs> that like there's a lot of prep work that requires there. I mean this is to me like the big mystique of everything when it comes to modern dating and, and it comes to a lot of different things is there's prep work of involved in lots of these things. And, and, you know, so, but we don't get to, we don't ever get to really look at the male prep work that's involved until we, you know, are partnered and maybe get to see that. And, and even then, like sometimes, I mean, Julio's a close the bathroom door guy, so I don't know what prep work is involved there, but um, you know, just sort of acknowledging that that happens. And yet at the same time, I think it's part of the bro code not to let anyone know that you're doing that, that you're spending time or that you're, 
you know, that you're fussy about certain things or that you have, you know, or if you are fussy about some things, it becomes a quirk as opposed to like in any way normal, you know, if you, if you care or if, you know, um, I think my brother-in-law showed up the other day wearing um, like fake glasses, you know, and Uh he was, you know what I'm saying? Like the ones that you could just buy that are glass. And he was like relentlessly teased. And yet at the same time, I'm like, why do we care? Or like, who cares if he wants to wear fake glasses? Like, this is just part of his image. You know, this is what he cares about. And I think that these are, there are certain things that we are sort of encultured to believe and and to trust. And one of the things is that that men spend no time on appearances, that they don't care about those things, that they, you know, roll out of bed and, and look like this. And it's funny because JoJo was watching Clueless the other day. Um, do you remember that movie, Clueless? Yeah, and love there that was, movie. Yeah, and there was like that that thing where um, she goes like, guys just roll out of bed looking like that, and they're you know throw on some baggy pants and their gross outfits, and like they just expect us to swoon at them. And I feel like we're sort of moving the dial a little bit to think like, well, maybe actually like they put some thought into these things or maybe they don't. I don't, I don't know, but I do feel well, like. I, I so. definitely have always believed the lie that men are not vain, that they just look like that naturally. And I've always been very envious of it, um, you know, because I you know, was a I was a teenager in the late eighties and nineties, and that was when you were supposed to wear flannel and pretend like you didn't give a shit. You know, and I spent a lot of time pretending like I didn't give a shit, but you know, I still worked on all of it yeah. pretty strenuously, and um, and so that whole I, I really did believe that men weren't vain; they didn't care how about really how they looked or what or their clothes or whatever. That's to an extent true for some boys because their parents buy them the clothes. They don't have a choice. Um, but I, it wasn't until I started living with my husband that I, <laughs> I noticed small things about him being vain. Never about things that I thought were interesting. Like he was vain about his muscles. He would look at his muscles and flex them. He still does that in the mirror. Um, whereas I'm more concerned about hair and clothes on a dude and he doesn't seem to really care that much about it. But like, I think... There, I really, I want to believe that people just are naturally beautiful because that sounds so convenient and so luxurious and wonderful. But the fact is, like, everyone does stuff to style themselves out so that they look the way they want to look. But I feel like um, women are penalized for it. And men are penalized too, like your brother-in-law for, for trying or making an effort because that's girly and ridiculous and it's not an interesting concern. And, and I do like, even today, like I have a bunch, a whole bunch of things about male adornment that I carry with me that I don't think the younger generation does. Like, for example, I think men wearing jewelry is gross like, to me, if a dude was wearing a lot of jewelry, I would be like, what is wrong with you? You know, mm. <laughs> why are you doing that? But at the same time, like, it's such a shitty sexist thing to think, because why can't he do whatever he wants to do to his body? If he can afford to wear all that turquoise, then have at it, you know? But for me, that says something about, like, his character, which is crazy. What do you think about oh, it, you know? Well, that's interesting, because I feel like that has been partially deconstructed 
by by being married to a black man. So Julio has I've never worn earrings since we've been together and Julio always has. And like <laughs> at the like I think a part of a there was just a lot of stuff with his own culture that made me sort of undo mine. Any kind of thing that I would think about, I would be like, oh well no, because that doesn't make sense for Julio. That doesn't you know, like all these things. And in that way I think that that uh, I would say like hip hop culture is really helpful in that way or other things. It's sort of widening your world circle. You start going, oh, well, yeah, I don't really like turquoise on dudes, but like that looks good. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, right. Well, and Adrian had earrings when I met him and he used to have his nipples pierced. And I mean, obviously you make excuses for people that you like in other ways, but like the adornment part of it is something that's built into me that I'm always like. Like the the thing I'm always uh, nervous about, a man who is very good looking, he's probably going to care more, more about himself than he's going to care about you. He's going to be stuck up. He's going to be superficial. He's going to be um, conceited. And so, you know, avoid. That's bullshit, you know. Um, so you're stuck with some, you know, poorly dressed slob that. <laughs> that notices nothing. So it doesn't right. matter. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's a really interesting thing. I mean, I think all of this gets down to the idea of like, what are we conditioned for? What are we culturally conditioned for? And what are we uh, in terms of our gender con- condition for? And it's super interesting to watch now as the world's playing out and you're seeing a lot more gender fluidity and you're seeing a lot more people sort of take on different things where you start to realize like what you and I learned uh, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s about what what guys are supposed to be like is really being pushed up against in a lot of different ways. Um, I mean, you said that you for the you know, it was when you were partnered with Adrian for the first time that you started realizing the the vanity element of guys. And I would say like it was when I was best friends with a gay man in college that I started like really getting to experience um you know, just a different side of masculinity in a way that I was like, oh, all these different things mean something to you and you're honest with me about them as opposed to because there was no I mean, with my friend Michael, there was no end game there. He wasn't looking to like bed me. And so he could be really honest with me. And I actually find that incredibly refreshing because he could also be really honest about the pressures around masculinity that I thought were really interesting, um, both as a gay man and as a man who is trying to just sort of find his way into his own. And how do you marry these two different things? Yeah, I think that the whole, um, this is why I'm going to go off on a little tangent. This is why I really like contrary music. Um, there's a whole catalog in contrary music. It's basically like, the Rosetta Stone of white male privilege is, it's all, you know, categorized in all of the music, you know, past and present. And um, there's a librarian named Angie Manfredi who also likes country music like I do. And we're always analyzing on Twitter the the lyrics of these things because there's so much entitlement and the women are so treated like objects and they wear either sundresses or cut off shorts or, um, you know, cowboy boots with pigtails and there's a very limited view but there's this thing about country music where the man is this sort of traditional man in the way that um that a lot of people have stopped believing in um 
I feel like we, in our generation, Krista, you and I have more the man, woman, gender handrails to hang on to. Whereas the younger generation is like, yeah, fuck it. We don't really care. Like, right, right. fuck who you want, be who you want, wear a dress if you're, you know, got a dick. No one gives a shit, you know? Whereas I think you and I might be great grasping for the handrails a little bit more because there was this whole myth of the alpha male and what does that mean? Um, and you were either an alpha male cowboy, like in a country music song with the pickup truck and a dog and you were drinking whiskey, or you were a beta male, you know, drumming in the woods, reading Iron John, yeah. uh, Being eating a nerd yogurt. Fart, nerd fighters, all the like the nerdy Re- things. Yeah. Too, yeah. Reading Starhawk, sitting in on women's studies classes and being like the only dude in a women's studies class. And so there was like those two choices and neither of them, you know, are that great. Like they, I don't really support either of them because they're such caricatures. But the funny thing about country music, which I find is really endearing about it, is that even amidst a lot of the sexist entitlement, there's also, it's so emotional. Like the men are like sitting there crying about this woman who's left them or whatever their heartache is. And they're sitting there being super vulnerable and emotional while also maintaining this sort of, I'm a super tough guy. I'm going to die with my boots on, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't know. It's like intoxicating. I could like put it on a plate and eat it with a knife and fork. Like I, there's something about it that just, I mean, maybe it's like still wanting to believe in Santa Claus, wanting to believe in the alpha male who also is tender and emotional and gentle and expressive about all of those things. Whereas in reality, I don't think men are taught to be expressive about anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, and if they are, they talked about this before. I don't think you get both. I mean, this is why uh, the female fantasy of I, I think about the, all the cowboy romances that I um, edit and how these are very popular. And, and it's exactly that. It's it's sort of the country song on page on, in a romance book. It's the alpha bro and the, uh, you know, who's who's also got sort of this heart of gold. And, and the reality is those kind of dudes don't exist. I mean, let's put The Rock aside and say, like, the majority of... The Rock is a Republican, oh. just FYI. Mm. Yeah, sorry to we don't kill know. your boner. He has not, yeah. not planted his flag in Trump's front. So, like, let's... We'll hold that off for a second. But put everything <laughs> that aside, like, the majority of, you know, traditional alpha males, and I'm going to say, like, okay, so cowboys, ranchers, everything else... You know, they don't have this vulnerable side. They don't have, you know, this side of them. Or maybe they do, but they're not putting that up as a front. That's not what they, you know, that's not what they've learned. They've learned that you keep those things to yourself, like all of that stuff. And so why the country music song or these cowboy romances are so appealing is that you kind of create this best of both worlds, right? Where you have the guy who can you know, handle reining in the horses for the day. It also, you know, has this great pickup truck where he's going to make sweet love to you, you know, (laughs) right? (laughs) And like spend all his time, like making sure you come six times before he even gets his dick inside of you, right? That's right. That's the... The ideal in a lot of ways, and and it's a myth. It, it, it's it's a myth, right? That's that's sort of the mythology around those, and they're super popular, and yet at the same time, like very aspirational, and not something we would ever see. Um, I'm right. curious. Well, and the, the other part is with that, like 
same with the Navy SEAL romances or the I'm a hired assassin romances. The idea that a woman's victory would be to harness the violence and the toughness that an alpha male has and have him work for you, you know. But the truth is that people that are violent and tough and not expressive are often really, really uh, dangerous. Yeah, You know, they those are people that they don't, they spray that in all directions. It doesn't matter if you're their, you know, wife or girlfriend or whatever. And so it's, it's a fantasy to think that, oh, I will, I will be the one to harness that so that he will be loyal to me. And then I won't get the brunt of his, you know, assassin skills or his super calloused hands that dehorn, you know, cattle or whatever the fuck. Like, I mean, the, the idea of that kind of life and then having that person be your sort of foot soldier of love is crazy. But like, it's like, that's, that's an aspiration that women think is possible. And I feel like often Mm -hmm. that, that really turns on them in a way that's super dangerous. And that with the whole alpha male thing, like, what I'm interested in is wondering, like, women have done really great jobs in the last few decades, especially with feminism is focusing on themselves and what does it mean to be a woman and, and how do you expand the definition of female? Because I know I grew up thinking, well, whatever I did was what girls could do. So that I expanded the definition with every move I made. I didn't follow the, the line that I was given. And I think girls and women do that a lot more freely. I think men are kind of stuck in this box. They can be an alpha male or they can be, you know, somebody's chump. And there's not, there's not a lot of fluidity. And you don't see it because only men will only reveal certain sides to very specific rare people. So there's not a lot of examples of what that looks like. And that's the thing that I think is, is interesting because if they keep, if men keep doing the same thing over and over and over, it doesn't really matter how women have decided to change themselves or expand their definitions. There's still going to be, in danger of violence and rape and sexual assault and domination and other really harmful ways. So I'm really interested in men like taking this conversation to themselves and and examining what they're taught and what they teach their own sons and so forth. I agree. I think that that's really, and and if you start thinking about it in terms of just the, the fluidity of our culture and the things that are happening There's a part of me, and and I have no quantifiable data on this, but just also thinks that even with the gender fluidity, it seems that uh, it's sort of safer, I would say, to be uh, gender fluid as a girl, maybe, than a boy. Um, I don't know. I I think a lot about the idea of, of safety and um, even sort of uh, in, in the trans world and in, in lots of different worlds, like when do you become unsafe? And I, I just think that there's something about, you know, here again, like toxic masculinity or or those things that make it more unsafe in, in the male world, if that makes sense. Um, well, and it comes back to the kind of gender studies 101 thing when you talk about metaphors, you know, metaphors echo and resonate endlessly. You can't, you can't uh, stop them. So if you say 
men are tough. Tough equals man. The way that will a woman will try to be tough is then going to be Katniss Everdeen. She's a killer. She's relentless. She's physically strong. She's a marksman, etc. And so I think that the expanding the metaphor in a way where it's not just tough equals calloused hands cowboy, but tough equals um, I carried your baby for fucking 44 weeks and then I shot it out, you know, and it lived. Um, Like there's a lot of different definitions that need to be tested because those metaphors just kind of strangle us in, um, in how, what a person can be and what it means to be one thing. If uh, uh, I'm losing my, no, 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 I do know. And I do think also too, like what, how do we redefine tough when it comes to like, you know, maybe being gay, like then that's a whole different thing because maybe tough is enduring. And this is actually a perfect lead into one of the books that I wanted to talk about today, but maybe tough is being able to um, endure or just survive something that is very difficult for you or to even navigate what is a really toxic culture, right? So um, one of the books that I highlighted, can we do books? Can we? Are we? Yeah. Okay. Go. One of the books I highlighted um, for our conversation about masculinity is is Heidi Cullinan's um, Fever Pitch. Um, this is actually a, um, I think it would be cataloged as new adult, um, although it does start uh, at the, the summer before college, so end of high school and in, going into college. Um, and it's a male, male book. Um, and it was actually one of NPR's uh, top romances this year, which is pretty fantastic. Um, And one of the things that I really like about this story and how it starts is uh, one of the characters whose name is Giles uh, is at a party, you know, post-senior year, pre-college. And his whole thing was, and he was sort of gay bash relentlessly through high school. And his whole thing is just getting out. But as you learn at this party, part of how he has managed to get out and survive and navigate and everything else is actually by like blowing some of the jocks who have gay bashed him. Um, And it's super interesting because I think that not only does it say a lot about the, the nature of survival, but it also says a lot about the nature of masculinity. Like here are guys who like, you know, at, at the very beginning, like he bumps into a guy who a week ago, you know, had just come in his mouth and call, and the guy calls him a fag. And this to me is so interesting because you wow. start getting into the idea of, 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 you know, this sort of subcategory of guys who are uh, uh, probably gay, maybe bisexual, who are still in such serious denial about their own uh, their own world that they have to, uh, you know, perpetuate this this kind of gay bashing or that behavior. And it's super interesting because I do know that those people like that exist. I mean, go on Grinder. I mean, not that I'm recommending anyone go on Grinder, but if you <laughs> go on Grinder, there's tons of guys who are like, you know, you know, trucker looking for a bottom hookup, you know, like all these different things. Um, right. And actually, it is worth everyone just going to glance at Instagram's best of Grinder because it's hilarious. But the point is that the idea that uh, there are a lot of guys who are still wanting to stay in there very rigid 
masculine straight lanes who actually are probably gay or definitely interested in other guys. And so how are they navigating this? And are they all navigating it on the down low like this kid Giles is? And um, what's so great about this book is that part of Giles's arc, I guess, in that story is um, to come into his own when it comes to asking for what he wants and not accepting sort of the shitty behavior of these other people. And it's one of the reasons I really like that, because part of this is sort of redefining masculinity. And and what's great about this, the backstory of this is that it's in, in college, they are uh, the two characters, the two male characters are in like a, a, a glee club kind of situation. And even the other character, Aaron, who's kind of a bro in high school, joins this glee club. And, and that sort of is a deconstruction of what he knows in his own mind. Um, so it's arcs for both of them, and it's really smartly done. But it starts asking the question that you, what you were just talking about is, how can we redefine masculinity? How can we re- redefine toughness so that toughness becomes a lot wider of a definition? So there's this is uh, interesting because it goes on along with my book, which is Jellicoe Road by Melina Marchetta. And also Jellicoe Road is sort of the all purpose best book in the whole world. It truly is. Me. It's so excellent. And Australian. <laughs> Really, and Australian, of course. Um, but in that book, you've got a pretty damaged boy named Jonah Griggs, whose father has completely terrorized their family f- uh, for many years with his own violence. And it seems that the father must also have some sort of madness, mental illness, because it doesn't. It's completely irrational and and uh, frightful. But he has actually killed his father. He hit him over the head with a cricket bat because he was attacking their mother. And um, so he's uh, also in this like ROTC situation in the story. So he's a very military, which couldn't be even uh, any more of a encoded uh, alpha male you know, <laughs> definition. Yeah. And he, he's also violent. He's still violent in the book. Like even if he... Um, he doesn't do certain things he he in his later revealed that he sees a counselor every week and you could say that his violence against his father was honorable because this man was hurting his mother it's still he still wields a lot of it um and he still is ruled by it um but and then the the girl taylor is this girl that's grown up in so much chaos and and abuse as well and so you think Let's hope that he protects her. You know, that's part of the the romance in that story is that he knows how delicate she is because he's been vulnerable himself. The funny thing is, though, a lot of times children who grow up in abuse like that, they just become as as violent and aggressive yeah. as a, a survival mechanism. They don't, you know... <laughs> I don't know. I, I find it, it's kind of frightening in a way, because I love that book and I love Jonah Griggs. But if you if you pull back and you go, hmm, what are the odds of him actually being this way yes. and treating Taylor properly? I mean, there there's a, a scene in the book where he catches her breaking into um, the brigadier who's in charge of the, the boys and the cadets in the ROTC situation. He catches her breaking into that guy's tent 
And she's like looking for these old pictures or something and she's losing her mind about it. And, and he's saying, please don't be crazy, Taylor. Please don't be crazy. And he's like, he's like trying to, he has a very limited repertoire of ways to help her. Um, and it's kind of funny how he's, he's sort of been given, he's readily given tools to be violent and survive, but he's not given as many tools to, um, be emotionally responsive to people yeah. in the same way. Or it's, it's, yeah. 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 So that's, and I love that yeah. book, stem to stern, but it's interesting to think about why I love it and what, what sort of myth I'm buying into when I say I love it. Well, and also too, I mean, this is sort of a sidebar to that, but how many stories do we love where uh, the idea is that there's some kind of either violent or broken man and all he needs is the right woman to solve his shit you know and right. and this is in in perpetuated over and over again and i mean my goodness that's that's like you know it's twilight it's crazy horse it's like all these different stories all come together in and feels like ooh are we really perpetuating that idea that you know, just the right woman is going to be able to solve this. And and frankly, no, the answer is no, that's not how that works. She will yeah. somehow have be magical and beautiful enough to be immune yes. to his violence. Okay. Yes. What's your next so book? So my next book um, is uh, All American Boys, which I think is uh, a great follow-up to that, uh, what you were just talking about, to, to Jellicoe Road. Um, All American Boys is by... Uh, Brendan Kiley and Jason Reynolds. This is a very uh, timely, great book about uh, police violence um, on a black kid, uh, a white police officer. It's told in dual point of view between a white kid and a black kid. It's excellent. The story itself is really excellent. Um, and I actually got a chance to go and listen to the two of them speak about it. And they were really talking about uh, the nature of masculinity in our culture. Um, Rashad, who is the main character or who is one of the main characters, who's the black kid who violence is done to is also junior Razi and his dad is a former cop. And so there's a lot of systems in here of sort of a traditional masculine way, the violence that it gets perpetuated. And, and what's interesting is that you really get to see it over uh, in layers and layers over them. So it, it, it seems like, oh, it's just this, this story of a, of a police officer being really rough on a black kid, but really it goes bigger because then you get to see the overlay of what Junior Razzi gets. Is, is and then you get bigger into that and you see the basketball team and how the coaches and every uh, layer that you start unpacking, you start realizing what options are actually available to these boys. What, how can they really respond? What choices have they been given? What resources do they have to be dealing with conflict in any other way beyond violence? And that way is, um, this book is a really excellent look at how we raise our boys, um, because even Quinn, who's the white kid, has a father who died in Afghanistan, and that's a complicated layer into him, too, because he served in the military. He should be proud of this, and yet, really, like there's a lot of lessons there in that. And I think the whole book is a really excellent study in the way that our that we raise boys and the the culture that we're creating around them that leaves for so few other options. Um, and I know that this book uh, that someone had said recently, I read a blog post that was 
talking about uh, not having black girls being raised up in that. And uh, one of the things that Jason had said, he commented really thoughtfully on the blog, but one of the things that he had said was, I've always believed, you know, he's like, I was sort of even cringed when they told me what the title was going to be. And he said, but, you know, I've always believed that almost every movement really is started by women. So if you think about Black Lives Matter and all these other things, like, these were are generated first by women. It's women who are frequently on the front lines of these things. And, and going back historically, you can see this. And yet, how do the women inform or um, uh, fall into what is a really violent and masculine culture? What's happening with women? Uh, you know, even if they're leading the protests, how are they fitting into all of this? So it's a super interesting book just to um, look at and start unpacking and thinking about those things. Yeah, I think those institutions, I mean, you could you could make a list of all these very male-dominated institutions and see how really narrow the choices are. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to dealing with conflict, you know, you have basically confrontation that's, you know, pretty negative as the main tool. Um, and again, like those institutions codify our rituals for teaching people how our society should be. And when you look at them, you it's sort of frightening. It, it, it's not surprising that our culture is as violent as it is. Yeah. Because it's all written in the code of, of those institutions. Um, kind of uh, in line with that is uh, Winger by Andrew Smith. Um, and it also has a follow-up called Standoff. Um, but Winger starts out with a boy with a really difficult problem, is that he's growing up in this very masculine, coded society, goes to a private school where he plays rugby. And rugby is obviously a very violent <laughs> kind of sport anyway, where it's sort of prized that you're surviving um, a lot of physical inj injury and harm. But Ryan Dean West, the main character, he can't be a dominant man because he is 13 and, and, and a junior. So all of his peers are much bigger and uh, older, but he's a really smart kid. So he's sort of been accelerated through the grades. And in addition to him trying to live up to being like the other guys, which he can't because he's smaller, um, he also has to find, you know, prove his masculinity or, you know, his, his right to even exist amongst girls. And you want to be like anointed by the females who will say, yes, you know, you're cool. You're a dude. I'm not your babysitter. You know, I, I you're my equal in, in terms of experience and whatever. And so he has these, these really big obstacles and very little to work with. Um, you know, and he, he uh, gets on his side, a lot of allies of different uh, different kinds of boys. His friend Joey is the main one. And it's just like, you, you kind of look at how men, they, they are constantly having to prove that they have their credibility, which is a thing that I didn't really understand as a girl, because I felt like people already dismissed me anyway. So I just didn't have to like, really care if anyone thought I was full of shit or right. <laughs> was being a bitch because I already had low expectations, I suppose. So I, I wasn't 
that tense or stressed out about the reception others gave me because I was used to it being horrible. Whereas men, I think, you know, they're always jockeying towards that position. And you see that very much in, in winger and standoff. Um, and it's another thing that I just feel like is exhausting. Like what an exhausting way to live. It just, I, I don't think that for uh, for boys having to deal with that, that just seems like a terrible thing. And I don't have any sons, so I don't know how you're handling it with your boys, but it just seems like an exhausting kind of gauntlet that they live in, very different than women's. But Yeah, and what the expectations are there. Yeah, I think Winger is a really good example of how do you uh, match out, match up or get in line with, uh, things that you're just not capable of. Um, that's not anywhere in your wheelhouse or, I mean, even his sort of emphasis on sex is like, well, how, how varsity are you going to be able to be here as a 13 year old? There's just no way. I mean, there's just like, part of it is like, your just body is not going to be cooperating with you on this. Um, yeah, that's a yeah. I, I I put my boys in Montessori. That's myself currently. <laughs> I got nothing else. Um, uh, my last book is uh, Bennett Madison's September Girls, which uh, I think when it first came out, there was a lot of conversation around uh, the misogyny of this book and whether or not. Um, it was sort of gross because it was all these girls who were invested in having sex with the main character, Sam, and sort of the the mythology around these girls. I frankly think that this book is really masterful. Um, it's slightly magical. Uh, it's a little bit of a retelling of, uh, of The Little Mermaid, the original one. Um, there's a lot of different things going on in this book. Um, part of why I think it's really masterful is because it leaves you in that this place where you um, have to make your own decisions about what you think about this. There's no, there's no lesson learned here. There's no, um, it's not pedagogical at all. It's it's uh, it's something where you have to say, well, what do I think about this? What do I think about the lessons that Sam is being given? So, um, and you know, what's important in this case is that Sam doesn't necessarily have any real masculine guideposts that, that you could count on. You know, he's got a, a sex crazed older brother who just thinks that these girls, these mythological girls on the Island are his, his own holes to deal with. And, um, and he's got a I can't remember if his father is dead or absent, but uh regard the parents are getting a divorce yes, or something. Yes, like there's so they're they're absent parents. And so um in this case it's really Sam trying to figure out like how do you know if, if I've got a there's sort of a bro code that he's living by when it comes to sex and what he thinks about girls and yet at the same time like he actually really likes this Dee Dee and what does that mean um, for him and what does she want and she's got really conflicting things herself because she has an agenda which I don't want to spoil because that's part of the book but um, to me one of the things about this book is that it's very raw 
it's gross in some elements where you're like, really, dude? But at the same time, I think, God, I love that you put that on the page because I actually think that that's right. Um, And what's interesting is Bennett is a a gay man who uh, clearly has has gone a different way and has uh, figured out his own masculinity and how he falls into that. Um, But this is really so masterfully written because it really gets to the down to the heart of the pressure that boys um, are put under and whether we might think that that's an honor for them. But in this particular case, you really realize that it's deeply conflicting that uh, Sam's not having had sex ends up being um, what sort of pins him to the wall as very desirable to these girls. And um, the idea that his own sexuality and, and grappling with him wanting to have sex and, and, and being sort of accosted around that um, is a really interesting thing to start unpacking and thinking about and saying, is this the pressure that boys have to go through? Is this what they think? You know, is this what they want? Is this something that they've been led to believe? Which I think is really sort of the nuance of this is uh, looking at the story as something that guys have bought into or been led to believe and the fact that that's totally untrue and that these mythological girls are truly mythological, if that makes sense. Right. Well, the thing I think about September Girls, a lot of people kind of lost their mind about it um, because I think that we want men to just actually not acknowledge their lack of choices and acknowledge how they have bought into the bullshit institution of being an alpha male or whatever, because, but we just want them to be quiet about it (laughs) and say, no, I'm a feminist. I like you go women. But actually the fact is if you want to have dialogue with people, you have to have it with people that are not saying things you want to hear, you know, because that's what dialogue is. Dialogue is not, I agree with every goddamn thing you're saying, and we're both nodding at each other and linking arms. Dialogue with people that are like Sam, you know, who are inconsistent and have a, the ugly side of masculinity is kind of important because you know, all of us have our inconsistencies. And when we are asked about them directly, we think about them. You know, a lot of people don't even think about this shit. And so um, the idea that you would just be like, let's have some sort of sapphic commune or dianic coven where it's only ladies, and we're not going to truck with any of these icky, disgusting men who are bros or, you know, monsters or whatever. I feel like it's sad because even that book where he was saying the honest truth of his thoughts that weren't enlightened or hadn't been rinsed through some cycle of gender sensitivity and feminist doctrine, that's where the conversation is. The conversation isn't with people that already have read all the books you've read. And, um, And that's why I think it's important for young girls to look at that right in the eye and see it and and question their male friends and their fathers and their brothers, because that is an important part of the whole process. The fact that no one remarks upon it or just goes, ugh, gross, that's not really engaging in any sort of productive thought. Um, I'm not going to just fling my cape over my eyes and not look at it. I, I feel like 
being open and listening to people tell the truth about themselves is the most, it's such an honor to be given that. Um, and I mean, maybe not everybody wants to have that conversation because they have other issues where they feel unsafe, but I definitely think that's an interesting conversation. It's an interesting dialogue and it's not going to be comfortable. No, it, I agree. It never will be. I agree. I mean, even some of the um, incarcerated girls that I was doing book club with last last couple of weeks ago were saying like, oh, well, yeah, but that's not how guys are. And I thought, oh, gosh, I really want to unpack what you think guys are like, because that's so right. and something like September Girls is a really great starting point to say, is this what we think guys are like? Is this what guys are like? Is this, you know, is this what they've been led to believe? Is this, you know, all of those things, such good conversation. My last book is um, also kind of addressing some of these things. It's called An Ember in the Ashes by Saba Tahir. And I read it a few months ago and loved it. And the thing about this book is it has the main character named Leia or Laia. I don't know how which way it goes. Um, and she is a girl who it becomes a slave, essentially, in this society to sort of try to overthrow this group of people that are known as the Marshals, and they're very warlike. And she infiltrates a school for boys that's mostly boys. Every generation, they let one girl come into the school. Um, oddly enough, it's run by a woman. Um, and she infiltrates this school called uh, Black Cliff, where everything gross about masculinity is basically <laughs> shined to a polish. Yeah, I was going to say um, encouraged, held up, pedestalized. Yeah the, the, yeah, the threat of rape is everywhere. You know, any of the servants who are females, that's just part of the weather that they live in. They're, they know the people to be afraid of. They know the situations they don't want to get caught in. It is, it is everywhere in this book. Um the boys there even discuss how they go down to the docks to visit brothels. And these are boys that are trained um, from a young age to kill, much like the Spartans. And I believe if you do read a little bit about the research the author did is very um, extensive on the, the uh you know, the the uh, the Spartan culture, the Roman times, that kind of thing where she kind of cribbed some of the so uh socialization of those societies and so this school is just kind of a horror show except it has this weird thing where the the person who runs at the commandant is a woman and you're like Ooh, you know mm -hmm. that's kind of strange and she's she's also ruthless and horrible and cruel and so um it is i believe a trilogy so the next book isn't out yet but it's it's a really startling look at how that is that kind of cruelness, cruelty, and uh, sadism, and violence as the coin of the realm is basically, you know, it's a, a beacon on the hill for your kids. And what does that mean about this uh, main character named Elias, who at the beginning of the book is planning to desert? Um, does it mean he's rejecting all of that? How can he reject violence if that's the only way he can survive in this martial society? It's really interesting. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's a really exciting book also. The other interesting part is that the boys aspire, they wear these masks during battle and they are called masks. 
you know, the masks come and invade your house or whatever. And the point of it is that it will meld with your face and then you will not have any expression. You won't have any humanity left. And that's the goal upon leaving this school is that you will be that way. And it's such a cool image when you think about what we are doing to boys, what that school is doing to children and why that's so valued. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And also, I mean, just going along with that, uh, the, the notion, and maybe this is our, our, a later podcast down the, uh, down the road, but the, the notion that the school headmistress or whatever her name, the commandant is, uh, has to really take on all of these traditional masculine values to be the top of the school, to be the most successful. And it's always something that's been really interesting to me in terms of long-term study is to say, when we look at successful women, is it that they have have sort of donned masculine traits to become successful, or have they been able to keep this side of them um, you know, that has these certain, I guess, more traditional feminine values. Have they been able to still maintain those? I mean, it's such an interesting thing. And I think that's been totally evolving. But in this particular story, the idea that the only way for a woman to actually succeed is for her to have have sort of drank the Kool-Aid of the, the masculinity that's being perpetuated in the and the toxicity that's being perpetuated around the violence. Which she totally does. Yeah. I mean, she even, you know, is, she's not even protecting her so-called sisters. She's very casual about, you know, boys being rapists and using women um, at the brothels and blah, blah, blah. So she's like being the outmanning the men yeah. themselves. And this is a thing that all women have to, to kind of deal with. Like, are we going to try to... Uh, suck up to dudes to to get them to keep keep us safe um or to have them give us a little power um this is where the part about dialogue comes in because it's like if you have sons you can't just separate yourself from masculinity or if, if you want to live with a man if you are married to a man for example um you can't just say oh i'm done with that i'm not going <laughs> can't ignore yeah. it and so uh but the 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 structure wants to divide women and divide and conquer and so it's a really difficult road to walk um you it's it's not simple um and and so i'm really looking forward to the next book in that that series it's really uh well written and it also has some really interesting things about the one girl who was allowed in the school who is a uh classmate of elias helene i'm really interested in seeing what happens to her should we probably yeah, wrap yeah, up we definitely it's been should. a while yeah um so we hope you enjoyed today's show thank you listeners for your feedback and book recommendations it's been really uh great getting that so Sure. Yep. And email us anytime. Feedback at the oral history podcast.com. If you have questions, ideas for future topics or book recommendations, we always like to get those. Yeah. And remember, sex and books are two things that are better when you talk about them. Bye. Bye.